As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continued to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year, and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavours of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. Welcome to the SUPFM podcast with me, Simon Hutchinson. Every week, I chat with interesting people from the SUP world or to people who can help us, the paddlers of the SUP tribe, to improve and to maximise our own experiences and our love of both the sport and the water. Every episode is designed to inspire or to help you get a deeper immersion into the sport through my conversations with leading athletes, scientists, explorers, TED speakers and New York Times best-selling authors. And not forgetting some of the many insanely inspiring distance paddlers we've routinely had on the show. This week I'm speaking to the winner of both the 2022 Carolina Cup and the winner of the APP Santa Monica event, April Zill. If you've got any interest whatsoever in improving your performance in racing or just improving your life and your health, then you can't do any better than listening to April, who is the informed athlete who is clean sweeping all the top race events this season. April has taken a scientific approach to her racing, which is a reason for her consistency. And in this conversation, we really get down into the weeds, into some practical approaches, which will really help you, whatever your level. We also discuss her recent book, Athlete Agenda, which helps you to put together your own athletic preparation, whatever your sport or your event, because a one size fits all approach is not the best way forward. I really enjoyed this chat where the world of training nerdery features very heavily. And that is a world I love to spend time in. During our conversation, we also took some predictably wide diversions where I learned all about the sex lives of seahorses. But there was plenty of chats about stand up paddleboarding and training, too. So I hope you enjoy my chat with the unbeatable April Zill. Hey, April, welcome back to Sup FM. Hey, I am so stoked to be here. Well, it's great to have you back. And also, you're in a rich vein of paddling form at the moment. And um, I don't know whether you remember back to your previous appearance, but you were one of our first guests when we switched the podcast back on again after a five-year gap in 2020. So I really appreciate your ongoing support for the show. I, I Everybody in the stand-up paddle industry is so phenomenal. I just And we're such a small niche sport as well. I just, I definitely think a rising tide lifts all boats. Absolutely. Well, I didn't get to speak to you last time. I think um, Nick chatted to you, but it's great that we can catch up because since last time, 
when you did the interview with us, the world was in lockdown. I think you'd just moved back to North Carolina from California. And, and since then, you've really taken a number of really big steps forward in your performance, not least the fact that you've now got two full clean sweep victories of the Carolina Cup, which I know was niggling away at you for a while and something that you've been competing in for years without getting that top step of the podium. So congratulations on that one. We're going to talk about that in a bit more detail a bit later on, because I know that that's a real passion. But for the benefit of those people who haven't heard your previous appearance on the show, and we'll link to that in the show notes, you've come an enormous way from discovering the sport 10 years ago. And you rather ungenerously refer to your old self as a couch potato before you took up paddling and got to where you are now in the sup world. So just so that people can understand where you were and how far you've come, just explain what drove you off the couch and and made that huge change to your lifestyle. Um, it, It was a health scare. Um, I hate to say that it wasn't my own internal motivators. Like it, it, it didn't come from within. It was uh, a doctor telling me essentially a, like a, a bad diagnosis that I didn't, I didn't want my life to continue down that path. I realized that I had to make some really major changes. Um, and I had tried things like running. I don't know who wants to do that for fun. Doesn't seem like <laughs> paddling. Paddling was just the thing that I found because I needed a hobby in my life that I enjoyed enough to do frequently enough to keep me healthy. Um, Because everything that I was reading about disease um, and poor health, like it all comes back to diet and exercise in 90% of the books that I'm reading and have read and continue to read. it's always about moving the body, moving the body at the right intensities, strengthening the body, strengthening the mind, improving the mental outlook, and fueling properly uh, with clean, healthy, you know, from the earth foods. Um, and that is, yeah, that was the motivation. The motivation was to not die. <laughs> it's a pretty uh, significant motivation. And, and you pick paddling. So, you know, I don't enjoy running either. I've done quite a lot of it, unfortunately, but I never enjoyed it very much. Um, But you must have had some sort of love for the water already because um, you were a, or you are a marine biologist and uh, clearly spent a bit of time on the water. Just tell us about that love for the water and early connections with it. Oh, definitely. I I mean, I think my, my mother was in the water a lot at the local lakes and rivers when I was even just a baby inside her belly still. So, um, some of my earliest memories are swimming, splashing around in the water. I've, I've always been very drawn to water. I did go to, um, obtain my, my undergraduate degree. I started as a physics major, but I, I transitioned over to marine biology with a double major in environmental science and environmental education because I wanted to be working in the marine environment outdoors. When I pursued my master's, I found myself in um, in an office with no windows, no light, didn't see the light of day for about 50 weeks at, out of every year. And for two to four, you know, two weeks out of the year, I was at sea in the middle of December um, in the Atlantic, which if you've ever been in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in December, it's gnarly out there, and I get very seasick uh, on big craft, not on stand-ups or outrigger canoes. Thank goodness. 
but I was drawn to marine biology because I wanted to be outside and I wanted to, you know, raise awareness of, of the issues facing the marine environment. Um, it just, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And it was really ironic. The first few times I had entered paddleboard races, this is very superficial, but it's back when Facebook was kind of starting out and I would post about a paddleboard race and it would get like 20 or 30 likes, but I would post about the research that I was doing and it would get two or three. So that's like a factor of 10, the people I was reaching. So kind of in the back of my head, I said, oh my goodness, you know, if if I really want to reach people and educate them about doing more with less, living a more minimalistic lifestyle, kind of backing off from mindless consumerism and the things that are are plaguing our society and impacting the marine environment and, you know, causing its degradation, I should probably paddle, not sit in this office anymore. Actually, it's something that um, talked about with a lot of guests um, and getting that environmental message over there through activities and doing something different and doing something innovative is a really effective way of doing it. So the first conversation I had about it was, was a guy up in Virginia called Sup Garbage Man who relentlessly goes out there on his huge, great uh, paddleboard. I think he does the odd yoga pose just for, for a bit of social media exposure. Why not? But uh, he collects all of this sort of stuff up. And uh, I think we, we mentioned before we came onto this recording, just um, done an interview with Wallace J. Nichols, uh, the author of Blue Mind, and he very much takes that approach as well. So, I mean, it's a shame that people don't engage necessarily di- directly, but I guess when there's a lot of grim stuff in the world anyway, you want to sort of try and get your messages across in a sort of less predictable way. So I couldn't help but ask this question, so apologies for this, April, but um, in your bio at one point you worked as a seahorse breeder. I'm pretty certain not everyone in the world can say that they've done that job. What did that involve? Oh my goodness. I I, I personally claim my title as a sexpert. <laughs> can you say that? <laughs> That's not PC. <laughs> no. Um, no, it was phenomenal. I actually, I would have preferred to continue on the path um, and done my master's in that and followed it up with a PhD, but it just, it wasn't in the cards. For me, I I did, I lacked confidence and I let my advisor, when I went into my master's degree, talk me out of doing the seahorse research that I initially went back to do my master's. Like that was the intention. Um, And my advisor just happened to have loads and loads of footage and data uh, on deep sea corals for me to work up, which was interesting. And it was a like a secondary interest of mine, but I did not pursue my passion, which was seahorses. Um, but at the aquarium, yeah, I just, I kind of like played some Barry White, set the lighting <laughs> really good. And just every morning they mate for life. It's actually a beautiful story. So the males and the females, they, they wake up, uh, you know, like I said, set the music, set the lighting. And they wake up and they dance every morning together to kind of like re- reconnoiter that bond, just re-cement it um, to to be together. And the the male, it's hilarious because the males get pregnant, totally still fi- trying to figure out how to turn me and my husband into seahorses because I'm busy training and I would much rather just him carry it around. But the males, uh, they wake up and they open their little pouch 
you know, under their, their door, like their, um, anal fin. It's a technical term, right? But, uh, and they open it up and it looks like someone's opening a purse and like showing you. And he's like, Hey baby, look how big this opening is. (laughs) You can fit tons of eggs in there. And she's like, yeah, I can. That's, that's hot. And so she puts all her eggs in there. Um, and for the next, you know, couple of weeks they grow and his belly gets insanely big. Um, and he rolls around like at a certain point, they're usually on the bottom of the tank. It's just so mm. much. As you can tell he's like laboring. He's just like, my goodness, carrying babies is tough work. <laughs> and then before you know it, he he spews them all out of there. And there's hundreds and hundreds of microscopic little teeny tiny su- seahorse babies all over the tank. So I would take the males out, put them into the birthing tanks. And then the birth would happen. And then I would remove them and put them back in the main um kind of breeding tank with, with his lady friend. So. Wow. Dude, I loved it. And, and obviously this isn't a, a seahorse podcast, but um, <laughs> what, what, what happens, uh, what happens next then? Do you put them out into the wild or? or... So there are different initiatives actually um, because seahorses, seahorse populations are declining. There are certain initiatives that would like to take the seahorses that are being bred in captivity and release them into the wild. Um, The survivability, the ability of like captive bred seahorses to survive in the wild has not really been studied. That probably that would have been part of my uh, master's and Ph.D. research that I never did. So that would um, need to be assessed, but it's believed to be pretty low. Furthermore, there's like certain diseases, um, and genetic, you know, like deformities that may occur when breeding in captivity. And you might, there might be risk to releasing captive bred seahorses into the wild that could damage the native populations, the wild populations. So there's not really a program for that. Um, but what my, breeding at the North Carolina Aquarium at Fort Fisher did accomplish was I shipped my baby seahorses out to other aquariums that were members of the association of zoos and aquariums. So like, they're not for sale for like humans to have at their house, but other, you know, vetted, uh, responsible aquariums were able to send requests and I would ship seahorses to them for their display in, in their various exhibits. And that, prevented more seahorses from being extracted from wild populations. Amazing. Amazing. And I'm sure your paper about the effects of uh, Barry White on uh, seahorses is out there somewhere on PubMed or somewhere. So uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, Google is your friend on that one. So let, let's move from seahorses on to uh, stand-up paddling. And you first paddled in 2011. And um, it, it's been quite a journey in less than 10 years to get where where you've got and I know that you've had to manage and adapt your approach to get there so from getting from there to here how did you you start off your your paddling journey did you get any coaching or instruction to start off or are you all self-taught um there was a lot of self-teaching um for worse not for better (laughs) um like a lot of people I, I was very budget limited. Um, I did leave my job as a deep sea coral reef ecologist. I didn't work at the aquarium. I actually worked in a paddleboard shop so that I could paddle more often. Um, 
when I got back from a year abroad in India where I did, like I started paddling, I paddled there as well, but yeah, I didn't have the funding to hire like really good coaches. And in hindsight, I wish that I had invested in something like that. Um, because I think I could have accomplished my goals a little quicker. I came across some very helpful people along the path. Um, somewhere around like the six, seven year mark, I met Johnny Puakea and he's been really, um, just helpful in sharing training plans and technique. Um, and it'll analyze my techniques still these days. And that's insanely helpful because I'm still working on it every, every year I change something. I know I do, but yeah, YouTube videos and then books, um, mm-hmm. in the absence of funds, like I didn't have money, but I had time especially like when I'm waiting for the paddleboard rentals to to come check themselves back in. So I, I decided that I had this brain that I got this master's degree with, so I might as well use it at, at the same capacity. If I put the same effort that I put into my, my master's and something that was kind of like, eh, that I was in, on the fence passionate about, what if I put that same effort and read the same amount of like materials and did the same amount of research for something that I was for me completely selfish and that I truly loved. And yeah, I've, I've read so many books, but they, the most recent books have been the most helpful. I wish I had read them first. Um, but along, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So we, um, we raised the prospect of some level of nerdery in this, uh, in this chat. So name some names there. What, um, what books spring out for you at the moment? The ones that you wish you'd um, you read earlier. The two that I wish I had read earlier were the Big Book of Endurance Training and Racing. Um, it's the yellow one by, uh, gosh, what's his name? I just went blank. Anyway, and Training for the Uphill Athlete by Scott Johnson. And Scott Johnson's actually really accessible on his website, uphillathlete.com. When I need uh, like some training advice every once in a while, I totally, I book calls with him and yeah. So he's really cool and down to earth. Um, he's really driving me nuts. Cause I recommend the big book of endurance training and racing to everybody. And I've literally just had a brain absent minded moment. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, we'll link to that, but certainly it's it's through all of your website. You can see all the various different influences that, that you've got in there. And you mentioned about, um, you know, use your brain, not for something that's a bit meh, but something that you've really got a passion for. And and you've obviously got that scientific mindset as well. So just just tell me how, how that sort of manifested. Do you, do you read... You, you know, you read physiology and all of that stuff, or is it, you know, I mean, is it the whole spread of stuff, testing whether things work or not and changing your approach accordingly? Yeah. I mean, coming from zero background in in nutrition, physiology, human anatomy, anything like that, it, it was more like do something for a year. I would always train a certain way for a year, give it an honest try. I would have a, a hypothesis. Hey, if I did um, all these CrossFit workouts all year, I'd be super fit and I would probably win all my races. Tested that hypothesis. That did not work. That was called overtraining. And, um, but you know, every step of the way I've 
yeah, I failed. I failed for 10 years at, at the goals I had set for myself. And every time I failed, I said, okay, well, what part of that failed? Um, and, you know, nutrition was a huge leap in, in my performance. So I, I signed up um, for the Precision Nutrition online, like nutrition course. And I took that and I read that book. Um, what else? I talked to Larry Kane. He's an excellent coach uh, as well. He's phenomenal. And he recommended for training plans uh, to build those that I should read Block Periodization by Vladimir Shirin, which I still use to, to structure my training plans to this day. And then uh, for strength training, which is vital, absolutely vital for paddlers. It has nothing to do with getting strong, even though paddling is a power endurance sport and how much uh, pressure you can apply to the blade 100% matters, especially in upwind scenarios. But it's more about teaching your brain uh, to fire lots of neurons and activate more muscle fibers. So when we lift heavy, we're literally training the body to, to recruit more muscle fibers to lift a heavier weight. And in, in a nice controlled, safe environment, then when we get out into the water, we're able to apply more power to the water. So my favorite book on that subject was, um, I think periodization, no, uh, yeah. Strength training for sports or periodization for sports by Tudor Bumpa. And that one was really great because it sets out like the phases of strength training and what order you should do them in throughout the season. Um, because a lot of people in paddling, I think, skip the maximum strength phase, which I think is the most important, not just for the, the recruiting of the muscle fibers, but to develop a, a strong and balanced musculature. I don't know if you're into like Ross Edgley's books, but he really hammered home strength training for his paddle around the UK. Mm-hmm. And I like, I cannot echo that with like, you know, I, I'm shouting that from the rooftops. He's absolutely correct. When we pull something like our ligaments or our tendons, when we we paddle hard in a crosswind or an upwind, it's because we didn't strengthen the the organism properly. And furthermore, like you have to do it in balance. So your push and your pull in each plane of motion has to be balanced, or else you'll pull your own skeletal system out of alignment. Mm-hmm. That's when we we tweak something. I pulled a muscle. It's because your pull is so much stronger than your push or vice versa. So in the gym, we balance that so that we prevent injury, so that we can do a repetitive motion like paddling with success and no injury. And that, that's a pretty consistent rule, I think, with all levels of training. And, and we'll talk a, a bit about that in more detail. But I did want to ask you about your goals, because when you started paddling, what was there in your mind in terms of uh, what you were going for? You know, did you have this grand goal of you know, achieving where you've got to now or was it in increments or was it just looking ahead at the next race? How did that work itself out? I, I knew I wanted to take it to like the top level, right? So I, I did start with some more vague goals, which I, when I work with my like private clients, I try to get them away from setting goals that are too vague. Um, especially when we, we use the athlete agenda planner, there's like a goal setting section. Um, and it helps to have very specific, quantifiable, qualitative goals. So you can say something like, oh, I want to be a top paddler, 
but what does that look like to you? We like at the end of the day, we have to identify some race that we deem top paddler esque. Uh, furthermore, we would have to identify like what are the competitive times for that kind of race? What skills are necessary to be competitive in that kind of race? So I couldn't say, you know, I want to be a top paddler. And then if I won like Chattajack and it, it's a long, it's a marathon distance, flat water race, but I don't value as a, like if I don't value flat water, then that race wasn't important to me. I think I won that back in 2014 or 15. I don't know, but it was, it's a phenomenal event. It, I love Kim and Ben. They put on a, an epic event, but it's just, to me, that didn't check the box. Mm. Right. So it was always uh Carolina cup was always kind of my metric because you had to launch and uh, beat yourself through the surf. So there's a certain, and you have to navigate the inlet and then there's tides, there's current. So you have to be able to read water. You have to be able to set a strategy. You have to be able to handle yourself in the surf. And then you have to have the fitness to do the long grueling grind section. So I just kind of saw that as, the race that I identified a very well-rounded paddler. And I think that's why I set it as my goal, not to mention it was my hometown race. Well, that helps, doesn't it? Yeah. So, so just coming back to doing more and more coaching, obviously we've got the athlete agenda, which we'll talk about again a little bit later on, but um, I, I kind of share a, a bit of the same characteristic with you in that, you know, I've been paddling for 10 years as well. I do a bit of instruction, clearly not coaching to the same level um, that you do. But I think one of the advantages about coming to the sport, as it were, relatively late and doing it for a sort of concentrated period of time is that you can remember all of those stages that you went through. You, you're sort of properly aware of them. And I think that really helps when you're coaching people, because a lot of those problems that you're solving as an athlete, you can then help people out with when, when they're going through it. Oh yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, and for me to have realized my goal, even definitely like five, six, seven years in, I was like, oh my gosh, this is never going to happen, right? Like I, I definitely started losing steam and losing confidence. Um, but I didn't, it was just every time I, I found another hole, like another thing that I was like, nope, I could change that. And if that doesn't work, then next year I'll quit. But then I would I would fix the one thing and I'd be like, oh wait, no, but there's this one more thing. And if I fix that, then I'll, you know, and it doesn't work, then I'll quit. And having worked through them all, I do think I, I have a lot to offer people um, in terms of coaching because a lot of athletes were born athletes and they, they don't necessarily know why they're so amazing and they are amazing. And I advocate in terms of like getting coaching or clinics, anytime there's clinics at races, sign up for them. There's no like, oh, I signed up for her, so I don't need to sign up for his. Sign up for every single top pros clinic at some point or another, because each one of them is going to explain essentially the same stroke, the same topics in a slightly different way. And you never know which one of them is going to resonate with you. And when I started paddling, I, I took clinics with every single paddler, like everyone that was, that was doing a clinic. Um, but yeah, I, I do feel like 
in overcoming all of the obstacles. I have a lot more tools in my toolkit to help other people over overcome those exact same um, obstacles. And the last one, uh, so I'll go off on a slight tangent here and tell you like the one that I think, the one that I think made the biggest difference that I wish I hadn't waited so long to test or waited so long to, uh, you know, try was the, the aerobic base work. And I don't know if you had seen, I've been, I actually bought a blood lactate meter to test my, my lactic acid levels when I'm paddling because I wanted to be sure that I had my aerobic threshold, like perfectly pinned for like an eight month block of aerobic training. And sure enough, it was way lower than I thought it was. So for seven years, I was training at too high of an intensity to yield the adaptations inside my body that I, I needed to reach that next level. Um, I had fixed my nutrition. So you, you can say that it was the thing, but it wasn't really because there was all the other things that I already did. Um, but I do wish it was the thing that I did first because I would have um, spent a lot less time doing like the under eating and the overtraining kind of scenario, mm. which was a, a big time suck. Absolutely. And you must be psychic because that was the, the next section I was getting to, which is the aerobic deficiency syndrome, which you sort of referred to in there. And that certainly seems like that was a massive revelation. I mean, you know, under eating, you know, over going for that high intensity training rather than sort of grinding out the benefits of having a, a really good aerobic base. So could you just explain a bit more about sort of anaerobic and aerobic and the importance of training both? So when I started training, I did a lot of training well above my aerobic threshold. Aerobic means with oxygen. So at an aerobic, at or below the aerobic threshold, our body is utilizing mostly oxygen and fat as fuel. For every turn of the wheel, we get like 32 ATP. It's a very efficient energy system. Um, when we go above that, like the, the higher we get above our aerobic threshold, the more anaerobic metabolism we're utilizing. We're always using a blend. It would be a misnomer to say that like you're doing all one or all the other. As humans, we are just, we're always turning both, uh, both systems. We're always using a little bit of a blood glucose, uh, glycogen for the anaerobic, anaerobic style metabolism. It's always running, but I think you only get like two ATP for every turn of the wheel of that one, right? Um, as a fast twitch dominant athlete, so we have, you have your ectomorphs, your endomorphs, and your mesomorphs. Your ectomorphs are like your long, tall, thin, marathon runner style people. Um, they don't weigh a lot. They're always very lean. They're predominantly slow twitch athletes and slow twitch muscles are adapted to utilize more aerobic metabolism. So those people are, are just genetically more aerobically gifted, um, so to speak. Then you have your endomorphs, which like you're, you're very thick people. Like you look at a donut, you gain weight. You look at a weight, you put on muscle. Um, I definitely have a lot of endomorph genetics in, in my body. Um, 
but you can be an ectomorph on the top and an endomorph on the bottom. That's like the pear shape. You could be an endomorph on top and ectomorph on the bottom. That's like the apple shape to, to like quote all of these uh, people magazine. Uh, I don't know, like these shapes that people identify as. Um, so long story short, every single human body is different. We're all different. Um, the best kind of luck you could get is that you're a mesomorph and you're kind of like a blend all over. So you're not an apple or a pear. You're just like ectomorph, endomorph, fully blended. Yeah. The whole way through. So knowing that I was, well, realizing later that I was somewhat of a natural endomorph. Uh, if you look at my family, it becomes evident, uh, that I come from a long line of endomorphs. I realized that my slow oxidative fibers, my slow twitch muscles were probably the thing that was limiting my performance. So every time I went out to train, just straight off the the dock or straight off the beach, I go out and I, I set an intensity that felt comfortably hard for me and I would warm up. And that would normally get my heart rate into like the 150s, 160s, right? And every workout to me, I felt like I had to get my heart rate as high as it could possibly go. And I had to hold that for as long as humanly possible because in my mind, that's what the other races were doing. I'm like, well, their heart rate's really high and they're going really fast. So my heart rate was really high, but I was going really slow. I just assumed that my speed would come, but I would train like at the intensity that I wanted to race at. And in discovering that, literally nothing could be further from the truth. I, I dialed things back and I started training my slow oxidative fibers. So lactic acid gets a really bad rap, right? Like people say, oh, you know, it builds up in your muscles and it burns and that's what causes you to slow down. It's actually the hydrogen ions that are released along with the, the lactate with the lactic acid that slow you down. The lactate itself is used as fuel in anaerobic metabolism. So by going out and training at slightly too high an intensity all the time, my fast twitch muscles were just gobbling up glycogen and lactate every session. And I was continuing to train that system, which already worked fine in me. My body was very inefficient at utilizing fat and oxygen and going at any speed, like faster than like a crawl. So when I tested um, my aerobic threshold with a blood lactate meter, the generally like accepted level for the aerobic threshold is around 2, 2.5 millimoles of blood lactate per liter. Um, my aerobic threshold was down around 145, which means anything above 145, I was injecting my system with enough lactate that my muscles could burn that as fuel and they would not need to rely on aerobic metabolism. When I then ran out of glycogen um, in a race, yeah, you have to slow down, like insanely. You slow down so much and because your body's not efficient as a slow twitch athlete. So I spent an entire year training essentially right at 145. And I, I, I just wouldn't go over it Think because of the... Um, you know, the, the pandemic, I didn't really have a lot of places to go. So because that happened, I was able to train right at my aerobic threshold and I brought that up to 165. So on the outside, I look the same. 
to, to people. Like I'm going the same speed at 165 that I was before, but inside my body is utilizing oxygen and fat at a higher percentage than lactate and glycogen. So that means I have, I have ups now that I didn't have before. So like before it was pinned, like you can't, you're, you're just all out the whole race, barely holding on. So now at that same intensity, I have some ups and I can bring it back down. So I still have anaerobic metabolism to burn, to catch a train, to catch a wave, to like drop somebody or try to catch up to somebody. Um, you can start playing the game and having fun racing with strategy versus just, oh my God, this is so awful. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it's been night and, and day, just absolutely night and day. And my health is vastly improved. Oh, that, that, that's amazing. And going through your YouTube channel, as I did, I noticed, I think you were just testing the hypothesis um, at some point, but, uh, and you're in your OC1 and your uh, outrigger canoe. And I think it was about five weeks after you had started to do it. And luckily you stuck with it because you got to the end of your run and I don't know where you were paddling, and you looked a little bit annoyed, but uh, luckily you, you stuck with it because you did work it out because your frustration came from the fact you'd been training this way for so long, and then after five, six weeks or whatever it, it was, you ended up being three minutes longer, but then you figured out actually you had a massive headwind and you had to make loads of different adaptations. So you know if you'd done it via your old training system, you'd have been miles behind. Yes. And- I actually have uh, scheduled for release in the next few weeks an update where I am doing the exact same time trial. Um, I'm gonna. There's gonna be two separate videos. One now at 145, so the or 148, so the same heart rate from that video, which is now well below my aerobic threshold. But I want to show that the slow twitch muscle fibers have become more adept at applying pressure, even at that lower intensity. So the two videos will show uh, <laughs> that even at 148, I'm faster at 148 than I was at 148 a year ago because of the muscular adaptations to the slow twitch, the slow oxidative muscle fibers being uh, stronger. Then there's another video where I'm at my new aerobic threshold which just shows like, yes, obviously I'm at a higher heart rate, so I can apply more pressure, but at my new aerobic threshold, what is my time now that I've moved that, but still burning predominantly uh, oxygen and fat as fuel and keeping that anaerobic metabolism in check just until like that final 500, 200 meter sprint. This is the SuperFem podcast with my guest, April Zilg. And we'll be right back. As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. 
Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continued to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year, and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavors of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. Now for the rest of my conversation with April Zilg. It's really interesting because people talk about the psychology of racing, but it's also the psychology of training. Because I, I guess what you were doing with your high intensity stuff is a real like no pain, no gain. I've, it's got to hurt in order to, to get some benefits. But then when you're doing that lower level aerobic training, it's a bit more gentle and it takes a bit longer and it's probably not as exciting as doing that high intensity stuff, but it's just dialing things down and being pragmatic about your training approach. Yeah, it's definitely not as exciting. And I think a lot of people struggle to justify setting aside the time each day to do something that feels so boring and it feels like you're not getting a a whole lot out of it. But when we train that no pain, no gain mentality. When we train literally from a place of fear, we're training with our sympathetic system. So our autonomic nervous system is divided into the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. You, most people know that as sympathetic is our fight or flight response and our parasympathetic is kind of that rest and digest response. When, and, and science is very clear on this, when we are in a sympathetic state, when we are training because we're fighting to stay in front or we're fighting to catch up or we're, we're fleeing because there's people catching us. We're trying to stay out really. We're going to stay ahead of them or, or, um, we're fleeing just from work. I'm enough of today. I'm just going to go out and hammer to, to get away from work. Everything we're doing is, is again with this sympathetic state and we are suffering as a society and as athletes from this sympathetic uh, upregulation uh, of that system. And when we are in that mental state, we do not see gains. We do not see adaptation to our body because every calorie that we eat from the food we consume is being routed because our, our brains have identified a threat. We are fearful. We are scared. And we, so our, our, all our calories are just like, run away, get, catch up. I'm, I'm a loser, like, or whatever it is we're thinking. And none of those calories are now going to build the organism. So when you dial it back and you start to train from a, a parasympathetic state, a rest and digest state, a deep breathing state where you're taking these deep breaths, lots of oxygen every once in a while, you're, you're not trying to go slow. <laughs> you're, you're trying to push the speed as, as hard as possible. I actually, um, next Thursday, I'm my YouTube, uh, it's scheduled right now. My mile repeats. You can watch me do my aerobic mile repeats on YouTube. Um, but you know, you want to push the speed to the, to the max it can go before you feel that like urge to breathe. So when you like out of your mouth, when you, it starts getting a little hard, you can, you can take a big dump, uh, a big exhale. Sorry, you take a big dump. You want to edit that one out? Um, sorry, <laughs> I made myself laugh. Okay, a big CO2 dump is what I meant to say. So a big forceful exhale 
is uh, going to rid the body of CO2 and it's going to um, lower that heart rate. The heart rate lowers in response to the lower CO2 levels. So that's you're going to stay focused enough to push the speed, but be playing with your brain in ways to keep the heart rate down and keep it in the right right location. Because when we're in that parasympathetic state, that's where the magic happens. When we're training from a parasympathetic place, the calories from the food we eat, then they come in and they, they go and they make new body parts. They're not evading a threat anymore. They're not, you know, going to, uh, yeah, like just, just, just run away, this catch up. You're going to build new body parts. You're going to build new, uh, capillaries. So when we're in that parasympathetic state, our body goes, Oh, Hey, Hey, you know, we're moving, you know, what would make this a lot more efficient is if I had more blood vessels so that with every beat of my heart, every time it squishes more fuel, more blood. So more fuel carrying more oxygen and more fuel gets to each individual muscle fiber. And that adaptation is going to take a couple of months, but after those couple of months, now all of a sudden your muscle fibers are getting more fuel, more oxygen to, and more waste away from the muscles the muscles go, hmm, we got a lot of stuff coming in here. We need to build up the infrastructure to handle the influx of more fuel and more oxygen. And what your muscles are going to do is make more mitochondria. Ding, 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 powerhouse of the cell. What's making the ATP, the mitochondria? The more mitochondria you have, the more work you can do. And if you are, A, not eating enough, your body is not going to be build these new body parts. And B, if you're training at too high an intensity where it's just using it to all the time, you're never going to build these new body parts and you're never going to become faster and you're never going to be a better racer. Absolutely. It's all about teaching your body that what the training that you're doing is normal. It's not a panic situation that you just need to get through. This is normal. I'm just going to build up the resources in order to to support that. I think the other opportunity there, there's a couple of other little games you can play. One is the, the form of your paddling as well. Because mm-hmm. if you're not, if your heart isn't pounding out the top of your head, then you can really concentrate on your form. And also, if you're up for a bit of meditation practice, that's all good as well. So, uh, so there's lots of things and lots of games you can play while you're doing it. But as you say, it's 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 kind of investing the time and not really going to this no pain no gain approach, which has always been like a traditional way of doing things. But I'm sure it works for some people. But yeah, I, I, I'm I'm with you on that one. You just have to build your base up and be pragmatic about what works. Yeah, and I mean the the no pain no gain. It does work for about six weeks. It elicits the adaptation more quickly. And that's why it's so glamorous because you do it for like a week or two and you instantly see improvements. But because all of the, like I said, all that fuel is going into just the activity and not building the organism, you're lucky if you just kind of burn out and fizzle out first. The worst case scenario is that you actually become injured because again, your body's not utilizing the calories, the fuel that you're eating to to build your muscles, to build your capillaries, to build your ligaments, to build your tendons, it's just going into evading the threat. And that's when you feel that like overuse injury, that's an indication that you've definitely been training for a little too long. So, or, or at, at too high of an intensity for too long. I mean, it's a fascinating area and, um, you know, it, it, endurance had the experience marathon running. I'm the ex rugby player and, 
doing endurance sport isn't suitable for my frame I don't I don't think really or certainly not running and my real step forward seeing as we're getting into book recommendations is a book called uh, Chi Running if anyone out there does fancy doing a bit of running it's by a guy uh, called Danny Dreyer and it's all about working with the natural movement of your body ergonomically in order to sort of move forward rather than what I was doing which is just a sort of extension of my sprinting style and ending up you know when you go longer than 10 miles you end up doing yourself a a bit of damage so yeah it's all about sort of being kind to yourself and and easing up really and um, one subject I wanted to talk to you about and, and again another common one in my conversation with with athletes is cross training and I know you've done a lot of crossfit it sounds like it didn't work out quite as well as you were hoping but um, it seems that the the OC1 um, single out rigger canoe is something that that you use really effectively so how does that help your supping it keeps my heart rate a lot lower when when doing training stand up is inherently a higher heart rate activity because it's body weight supported and i'm driving through the legs i'm still driving through the core and the lower body and the outrigger canoe but stand up, it's just that much more intense. I'm like literally like throwing my weight, like this kettlebell swing uh, with the lower body every stroke. And it just, it, it keeps the heart rate higher, keeps the, the stress on the heart just that much higher. And I think just me training at a lower intensity because I do have such a strong anaerobic system, uh, my fast twitch muscle fibers and my fast twitch system is, it's a lot. Uh, if, if I train it a little, it, it'll take over. So by forcing my heart rate to stay a little bit lower in a seated position, um, I'm definitely able to prevent overtraining, um, and prevent the release of too much cortisol into the system. Cause that's the other really negative by- byproduct. You're like, Oh, well, anaerobic metabolism. You know, when I do anaerobic training, it, shows results really quick and I get faster, better, and I feel it and I see it. Why wouldn't I do it all the time? Because the byproducts of anaerobic metabolism are really damaging to the body. Um, like high cortisol and, uh, just kind of throwing off your hormones. And as a, as a female, that's not good. <laughs> like we, we like normal hormones. Um, yeah, but running as well. So I, I do actually run. I mean, I hate it but I do it because it's a necessary evil. And I find that between running um, and outrigger canoe, those like really shore up imbalances on either side from stand up. So, so let's say that your running shoes are locked away. You haven't got access to any form of, of paddling. And if I was to restrict you to one particular exercise to try and maintain your health and, and your strength, I mean, you mentioned kettlebell uh, there um, you know, pull-ups, all of that sort of stuff. What, what's the one exercise that you would utilize just to keep yourself ticking over if you absolutely had to in this very artificial situation? Uh, very artificial. So when you say one exercise, you mean like one movement or do you mean like just going to the gym? Can I say strength uh, training? No, 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 one movement? Exercise, yeah, just, just one thing, one go-to exercise that, um, that you know, whole body type thing. Is there, is there any, I'll, I'll just, you know, uh, I, I What's been recommended to me is the kettlebell swings. I do like so, kettlebells. So that's it. That, that's a sort of whole body exercise. You've got a bit of weight on there. You've got the aerobic and, and anaerobic in there. And it 
sort of roughly fits the, the sort of the paddling movement. Other people have talked about pull-ups being one because, you know, again, it's talking about SUP as a, as a sort of pulling rather than a pushing exercise. So is, is there anything sort of in that area that you would you would kind of go to? I like all of those. I was going to say if it has to be a compound or a, a simple maneuver, because I really like um, overhead snatches. So mm-hmm. the bars on the ground and your arms are out wide and you, so you're pulling, so you pull it up and then you receive the bar overhead. So you have to slow down the movement and like, it's kind of like it, it's almost training the push musculature, but you can catch it in a, a squat position. So it's, it, it requires an insane amount of core. Um, it's probably one of my favorite like compound maneuvers. There you go. Fantastic. Great stuff. I'll uh, be practicing. And of course, it, it, it sort of exercises the, the back as well as the um, as well as the front. You know, sometimes there's imbalances and so on. So that kind of talks to your training approach you mentioned. Uh, when you chatted with Nick, you talked about something which I, I love talking about, which is sort of cold water therapy. And you talked about an interesting thing that I hadn't heard before, which was around reducing inflammation through cold water and that you want to do that if you're on a multi-stage um, competition, but you don't want to do that if you're just sort of just general training because mm-hmm. um, inflammatory response kind of helps you to build muscle and strength and so on. So I hadn't, hadn't heard that one before. And obviously cold water training also helps to habituate yourself to cold water, cold water shock for events like heavy, heavy water and so on. But um, you also mentioned about breath control and hypoxia and, and, and I just wondered what you do in terms of your everyday training in order to sort of utilize that because there's a lot about nose breathing and and holding breath while you're paddling how how do you use that when you're out do you have a sort of particular system or or set of exercises you you follow no I'm actually I'm not very disciplined in that the regards um I do my aerobic paddles where I'm breathing through the nose. And like I said, I'll do the, the CO2 exhales to keep the heart rate in check. Um, I do utilize like cold showers and cold water therapy, but more for the mental training aspect. It's not, and I never pair it to blunt inflammation or to slow down my body's adaptive responses. Um, I, I try to make sure I'm a nose breather all day. And in the age of COVID, I, most people that I know that got COVID are mouth breathers. <laughs> like, I hate to say that, like, close your mouth. <laughs> um, there's all these little cool hairs mm. and things in there cleaning and filtering. Um, shut it up. Wait, oh, there's another really good book, by the way. Was it, um, so the Oxygen Advantage or? Patrick McEwen, isn't it? Yeah, that one was really good. And he talks about. Um, in indigenous cultures, there's like the mothers will like, if their babies are breathing out of the mouth, they'll close it. And if Mm -hmm. if that gets bad enough, they'll like tape it shut (laughs) because they, they want to train their baby to make sure it's a nose breather. Um, because it's just so much more desirable. So just throughout my day to day practice, um, I do deep breathing. Like if I'm chopping vegetables in the kitchen, um, weeding my garden. I'm just doing deep parasympathetic inhales and exhales. I, I sometimes I do uh, square breathing. Uh, when I have allergies, I do like that lion's breath or like those forceful breathing. So I have a book on pranayama and every once in a while I'll just 
flip through that and find something that, you know, suits the ailment that I, I currently have, but it's, it's not like a structured discipline practice. It's more intuitive and it's more, um, yeah, just kind of whatever I need at, at a given moment. Mm-hmm. Because I also play like for no one else to hear, I sing really loudly in the shower and also <laughs> in my living room. So I do in theory, like I'm doing a lot of breath work when I'm singing really loudly. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it actually does help. So I take like big, big inhales so that I can hit notes or or hold them for a certain amount of time. So much uh, to my my cat's dismay. <laughs> and that also, so we're getting right into the nerd zone here. So, so that also helps to sort of exercise the vagus nerve, which is another sort of parasympathetic skill that you can build up. But anyway, that's probably for another discussion so let's move on to well first of all um who's interesting you at the moment in terms of maximizing your physiology so you you mentioned uh, the breathing book who do you think is sort of doing interesting sports science work or are there any areas that you're looking at uh, at the moment actually i mean i'm i really like um huberman right now is it andrew huberman i love everything he's doing my husband's really into like sleep hygiene right now Mm. um I don't use an alarm clock anymore and we keep like all electronics out of the bed room area um, and sleep pretty cold. And -hmm. I think that, I mean, that's helped a lot with, with things like just recovery and in general, like my, I just wake up, I pretty much wake up at the same time every day. It's between five 30 and six naturally, but I don't set an alarm because if my body needs extra recovery, I can, I sleep in as long as like, I don't have any meetings scheduled, um, obviously within reason. Uh, the other one that I feel like I've kind of known intuitively for a few years, but there was a really good guest on uh, rich rolls podcast recently and the gut microbiome and the importance of, of fiber and vegetables and whatnot in our, in our diet. And I have a 13-year-old boxer named Kaya. She's got her own Instagram, by the way. Um, (laughs) So Kaya the boxer, she's ancient for a boxer. And I feed her mostly vegetables. She's a carnivore, so she gets meat. But um, I save all my table scraps, like all my vegetable table scraps, like uh, the stalks on broccoli, the butts off of Brussels sprouts, um, little ends off of asparagus. And I, I save it in a thing all week. And at the end of every week, I boil it down with some barley, some peanuts, some blueberries, and a chunk of meat. And she eats it all week. And she's like running around like she's a puppy. And I was like, vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> vegetables are good for us. Um, but yeah, so I think emerging science is is just supporting that it's it's not that we're digesting the vegetables. It's that we we eat tons of foliage and greenery and, and vegetables, and that feeds the intestinal fauna. And when they are well fed and they are happy, they are able to digest your food more fully, and you are able to extract the like the macronutrients. Obviously, um, you're getting a higher percentage like transfer rate of what you're intaking, what your body is able to utilize. But furthermore, the micronutrient availability, the bioavailability of those things is greatly enhanced when you have happy little gut microbes. So, yeah, I, I'm very interested in like just the microbiome and the health of our gut right now. Yeah, there's a guy called Tim Spector. He's a UK 
chap. I don't know whether he was the one who was on on Rich Roll, but um, but he's written a lot of really interesting books about that. But there's a lot of people doing work in that area, and obviously we know if we're feeling tension, then our stomach reacts to that. But also, you know, talking about the the gut biome and so on, I think we produce more serotonin in our gut than we do in our brain. So it's like a, a second brain, I think they they call it. And obviously, the more diverse, the, the better. Let's get back into a sup. Um, and Dude, I was uh, going to say that's really interesting about the serotonin. I'm going to have to look that up because when I eat green stuff, I'm way happier. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I mean, it's all fermented food. foods and all of that sort of stuff. Kimchi. Dude, I make sauerkraut and I make kimchi yeah. homemade. Yeah, <laughs> back to stand up. All that. <laughs> right there we go. So, um, so Carolina Cup, real passion. We we've mentioned it already and um 2021 it was the only app event on the calendar it's pretty much the only sort of high profile race out there it was on your doorstep and it was a race that, that you've had a real passion for so so you mentioned a bit about you know what makes it special to you because there is a whole whole mix of different skills that that you need in order to succeed there but um normally the race is held in in april and this this one was uh, in November and the conditions were a little bit different from normal, weren't they? <laughs> Just a little. No, they were normal for November. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty gnarly to, to, to say the least. And um, I think in the graveyard race, they, they restricted the length of that. Um, so just talk us through, um, through that success. Cause it was a bit of an epic race, wasn't it? You were, you were behind them. You managed to get over the line in first place. Yeah, so the the U.S. Coast Guard ended up saying that they we were not allowed to go in or out the inlets. So that's why the, the course was modified. And so we ended up doing the nine-mile blockade runner course that is normally a part of the Surf to Sound Challenge in November. So I am familiar with the, the race course. We've done it you know, like just a handful of times. and. I started the race um, kind of like leading, thinking, okay, yeah, this is going to be a great year. And it was a king moon, like high tide. It was insane. There was a full moon. There was a king high tide. And all the islands that you normally are going around, they all disappeared. Everything was underwater. <laughs> um, so everybody's like making these beelines across the marsh. And I did not pick the right fin to shed weeds. And I just, I picked up a big old blob and I'm swishing and I'm bouncing and I'm trying to clean my fin off. And it just, it wasn't cleaning. Um, and I just, I watched the other girls just pull away and I was like, yep, this is like, this is my life. This is like the thing. Uh, I'm never going to win this race in a million years. Like I've just wasted the last 10 years of my life. My self-talk was abysmal. Um, I, yeah, I, I was pretty... No one, if anyone else talked to me that way, like you'd think they were crazy, but obviously because it's just me in my head, um, I was really letting myself have it. So <laughs> it never occurred to me that I was going so slowly because of the, the reeds and all of the, it's the Spartina alterniflora actually was what was stuck to my, <laughs> just to bring that back. I know exactly what was on my fin. Um, and I, you know, I was just, I was like, yeah, I'm just not, I'm not a distance paddler. I'm not good at this. And 
eventually I cleared the the reeds and in my mind, the damage had already been done. It didn't occur to me that without the reeds, I would be moving substantially faster. Um, but I was, and then it was that the same thing that I love about the long course came into play in the, in the shorter course, because there's a big like four way intersection of, of tide. And it was, was coming out. So it's coming like out of banks channel, which we were about to head up. It's coming out through uh, Masonboro inlet and it was going out on the, the backside of Masonboro Island where we were. And so when I saw the other girls that were decently in front of me at that point, I saw them kind of go straight into the four-way intersection and they got pushed so aggressively by the tide. And then the wind was in our face too at that point. And it like every once in a while, there was like a 30 plus mile an hour gust. And you're like, I'm done. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, But sure enough, like if you look at it, there's an eddy on the side that I was on. And then there's an eddy on the opposite side of the, the outgoing tide. And I knew they were there. So what I ended up doing is, is hugging the shore before the intersection. So I got into the first eddy. It looked like I was making a wrong turn up Masonboro Inlet. But I rode the eddy, which made me go faster than I could go with my own power into that eddy. And then I just stayed straight while the tide pulled me out and like it corrected me to where by the time I crossed the the tide, I essentially like ferried across like a whitewater move. I ferried across straight into the other eddy. So it was like an eddy, a slip and an eddy. And I I blinked and they're like, I was right next to them. And I was like, Oh my God, that worked. (laughs) I was absolutely in disbelief. And, but those eddies were swirling fast. So every time I crossed the eddy line, mm. I had to, to like set my rail because it would grab my fin and mm. like, cause it, it gets swirly because half of your boards like going this way now and the other half's still not in the eddy yet. So like it, it was really gnarly. It wasn't a stable route. It was definitely a, it was a hard route to stay on your board, but it was the faster route. Incredible. And and all of that study about water patterns and movements and experience, you know, around that area. I mean, it sounds like it's got everything going on in all directions at all times, pretty much. Dude, it was crazy. And uh hold on. I, I definitely since you said Tristan Gooley is a cool guy, I'm gonna have to call him and be like, Hey man, I liked that I did read that how to read water book uh before that race. I mean, I already knew about those eddies, but I was just super it, it was just really fresh in my mind because I had just read that book. So that's awesome. It's awesome. So, um, so you didn't just win the the distance race there, did you? April? You won the the sprint, sprint. the technical as well. Um, just, and that that was also um, a little bit gnarly as well, wasn't it? That was really gnarly. Yeah. (laughs) That was, that was big. Um, It was cool though. It was super fun. Like I said, in my, I, I did a like a vlog on YouTube of the event because I did like the the turn so wide and like to most people on the beach they'd be like why does she look like a kook I'm like yeah you come out here and try to turn around that buoy when it's blowing 30 miles an hour and the longshore drift is like you fall in you're gonna be 100 yards down the beach I was like I'll just turn like 
I'm mm -hmm. a second day stand up paddler and make it around dry. Yeah. Well, no that's, shame in that game. No, absolutely. You got to, you got to be pragmatic about these things. So you, you won that race. So, so, I mean, how did that feel? You got 10 years worth of paddling. You had a DNF on your first um, Carolina cup race and you worked your way gradually all the way up. And then first opportunity, um, you know, your, your home race. How did that feel? Because it was the modified course in November, I actually didn't, I hadn't felt like I had done it yet because it was the nine mile. Um, and, you know, like it, it just didn't feel like I did it yet. That's all. Yeah. I, um, I was not, I wasn't a, unhappy. It's like personality I'm suspecting here, here, April. I mean, you, you've, uh, you finally hit the straps on this one. You've, you, you've done it, but then you, obviously you, you put that right this year, didn't you? Yeah. So this year it feels like I did it. I'm done now. I did it. Like we're good. <laughs> it was the graveyard. We launched through the surf. We went downwind in the ocean. We had to surf in through Mason's Inlet. Um, it, the tide was insanely favorable this year. So there was definitely strategy um, with where you made your move or didn't make your move with regards to the tide. Um, so this year it feels like I did it. So I, I'll claim it now. Like I'm happy now. I'm done. Well, I'm we're all glad. We're all glad. Career sure. complete. <laughs> well, not quite, because racing obviously is being switched back on this year. APP's got a, a decent program this year. And this might not be right, but I hear a rumour that you might be joining us in London for the APP. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, it's on my schedule right now. Um, the weekend before is actually the World Va'a Sprint Championships. So I will be vying for um, hopefully a podium medal position in the Va'a Outrigger one person all out 500 meter sprint. So that's the big goal that I'm going to London for. It just so happens the APP is going to have their week uh, just the very next weekend. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'll just stay and hang out and do some APP stuff. Amazing. And you competed in London before, haven't you? Um, I have. How, how was your last experience? Um, you know, learning a lot about training um, and overtraining in myself, that was one of those races where I had done, I think, the Wild Buffalo Relay, which is a 42-mile uh, crossing from Catalina to Newport. Then I had done the Carolina Cup. And I can't remember, I think it was after I did the 100 mile race from Chico to Reading. I'm not sure, but I was really tired. And I was like, no, I can do this. <laughs> um, so that race did not go as well as I had hoped. Um, but like I said, I'm, I'm definitely learning a lot more about how to not overtrain and not overcook it. So I should be much more rested coming into this event in London this year. Excellent. Well, we look forward to seeing you up there. And uh, the, the route isn't bad, is it, along the Thames? Did you get a chance to look up at all and see some of the, the landmarks? I did. Big Ben was under construction. Oh. It was all covered up. So I'm very excited to get back. Amazing. Amazing. And what about the rest of the tour events? The, the Korean races look pretty tasty. Are you, you taking part in all of those? It's currently on the schedule. We'll see, um, you know, as with any international travel, um, uh, right now costs seem to be 
skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. So only my budget will determine uh, whether I attend or not. So mm-hmm. it's all exactly. about the budget. <laughs> well, it is, isn't it? At the moment, times are tough. So, so just which coming means, back. Oh, I was like, which no, no. means buy an athlete agenda. <laughs> well, funnily enough, I was coming straight to that. So coming back to coaching, you've put the hard work in. You've come from couch to the form of your life. You've experienced a bunch of training obstacles that you've had to work out and resolve, and you've done this all within a relatively tight time period of 10 years so you really gained all of that knowledge and an approach that works so tell us a bit about how we can all benefit from coach Zilgit. it would be great to hear about um you know your coaching and opportunities people have got to actually harvest some of your knowledge and uh, the athlete agenda is is something which is out there now it looks like a beautiful piece of work so you've got a bit of art as well as the sort of utility on it um it it looks like the sort of resource that, that you wish you'd had when you'd started paddling. Would that be a fair assessment? That would definitely be a fair assessment. Um, it's, there is something about getting very clear with your goals and your why. Um, Simon Sinek, the book, Find Your Why, very good one, uh, applies to athletes as well as entrepreneurs or business people. I find actually most books written for uh, business professionals are great for athletes and vice versa. Um, yeah, cause what I'm finding like with my, with my clients and what I did find with me is that, that, like I said, that slow, boring work, we tend to skip it in favor of the more glamorous workouts. I noticed that when the, the month pages on my, my agenda, like on my schedule, when they were really consistent. Um, when they looked really pretty and organized, like when, when just my planner looked beautiful and well filled out, my performances were better. So the, that discipline for me to sit down every day and write, you know, today I'm going to work on my catch today. I'm going to develop my aerobic capacity, like being clear on what systems I'm lacking and, and just focusing myself before the session. So I made sure I got the most out of it. And then coming home and reflecting in like my wins section and saying, oh, hey, you know, like I did this good or I did this bad. Like today I I blew out of my zone and I wasn't supposed to, but there was this really sick boat wake. So, you know, like you end up having this conversation with yourself. And then when you either perform well or don't at your race, there's just there's evidence, there's data, there's, hey, you know, did I, did I neglect my nutrition? Um, were there signs of my performance declining before I even got to this event? Because for a lot of us, our subjective scores, just writing down our subjective scores every day, like, hey, today I feel on, today I feel flat, today I feel springy, today I feel lethargic. Those feelings that we have are clues into our, our body's readiness to train um, and kind of like our recovery status and what we're, we're getting out of it. And if we can keep that record somewhere, like we're going to benefit more from our training. And the reason I didn't do uh, the athlete agenda as something digitally, I made it just a, a handwriting thing because, again, the science is very clear that writing it down, it's called encoding. So when you your eyeballs see your hand writing on the paper it encodes it deeper into your your mind, into your brain. 
So you, the recall is better and the neurological pathway is just, it's more cemented. Um, so say you're in a, in a high stakes situation in a race. And if you've recapped about your training, like, Hey, in a race, I'm going to reach further and apply more pressure. And that's something you would write to yourself in your agenda. When the time comes to do that in a race, you're like 80% more likely to do it because you wrote it down and told yourself you're going to do it. When you just get off the water and you, you know, you F off after your session, it's like, I didn't write down anything. You're not going to improve. So I know I harp a lot on the, the aerobic development, but in all honesty, that goes hand in hand with reflecting, like taking the time to set intentions for the workouts before them and reflect on them afterwards, I think is just as important if like not, yeah, it's just as important as the aerobic base. It, Mm. it can't be understated. Absolutely. And and you're right about that, writing it down, because, you know, I, I love digital bits and pieces, but, you know, just recording a memo, I must do this next time. You know, you're not going to listen to that again, are you? Whereas if you're writing it down, you you know, you, you're watching it, putting it down, it, it sort of makes a bit of an imprint. So even if you don't look at it again, you've got more likelihood that you're going to remember it. I, I use a system called the bullet journal. Um, mm-hmm. which is another sort of reinforcing type methodology. But, you know, I, I think it's a fantastic resource and it, and it's, and it's a, a, a nice looking, it's a beautiful thing. I think the other thing is, is that you're going to be more likely to use something like this if it looks nice and it feels nice when you're using it and you've got all of the sort of in, inspirational uh, phrases and, and prompts and so on in there. So it looks like a, an absolutely awesome piece of kit. Um, and I'm preaching to the choir here. Don't have to persuade you on that one. And um, you know, what other things are you working on at the moment? Where, where else can we harvest your your coaching skills? Dude, uh, I've I've got tons of things going on at any given time, um, and I have price points for all all budgets because harken back to my story that I did not have these resources when I started paddling, and I really wish I did. Um, for $5 a month, you can join members.theathleteagenda.com. And that's just, it's one of those mighty networks. So if you have questions about board shape, uh, your technique, your training, like anything in the world, filling out your agenda, that's, it's there. Like you can join that. And I mean, we're having really cool conversations about nutrition, um, kind of roadblocks, reasons we're not training or not getting our training in, ways that we're creatively overcoming those. Got a, a good community with about like 40 active members right now. And yeah, we're just, we're talking all about paddling. It was supposed to be like the athlete agenda group, but inherently all we talk about is paddling. Uh, maybe one day it'll evolve. Um, a jump up from that, I've got uh, inside there, it's called the Punk Paddlers Group. And a punk is kind of that, um, it's, it's a, a demographic of people who want to do it themselves. So if you want to read all the books that I've read, um, build your own training plans, or maybe you're a coach who wants to learn how to coach other people better and build training plans, you don't want anything done for you, but you just maybe want more specific guidance on how to do it yourself and, and you know, the resources to learn faster um, and interact with me on that level. We've got that group open and available. Um, 
I've been sharing, I'm actually slowly building out a Garmin workout library within that group. So all of the workouts I do, I've uh, found a plugin where I build the workouts in Garmin Connect. And by joining that group, you have access to all of the pre-built workouts that I'm putting together. Um, and you can download them and put them in your Garmin and or share them like with your clients or whatever, uh, how they appear in a training plan. Uh, those training plans are either available for purchase through Training Peaks, or if you're into just pre-built training plans, uh, I do have Paddle Ninja with Johnny Puakea, Danny Ching, and Paolo Amiglio. So that's like another option. So if you don't want to be social and community in my athlete agenda group, um, you can literally just join Paddle Ninja and it'll deliver your training. Um, you can follow it and you don't have to talk to me at all. And well, so that, like that, that's, that's for the introvert. adventure. Wow, that, that's incredible. And obviously all links will be in the show notes. Um, April, I could talk for another couple of hours, but thanks so much for your time today and being such a supporter of the show as well. Um, we've talked a bit about where we can find you. And as I said, I'll share those uh, in the show notes, but just wishing you all the best for the season and hopefully we'll get to meet in person in London in August. So, yeah, we should do a, a, a sub FM um, live maybe or something. A, like, like a clinic or something. I don't know. Let's oh. do something. Oh, well, well I, I certainly need need it. But uh, yeah, that sounds fantastic. Let's organize um, something. Yeah. It'll be fun. Well, let, let's do it. And um, yeah, so, so go well for the season. It's been fantastic talking to you. Speak soon. And I'll see you on the water. Will do. Yay. Thank you so much. This has been fun. <laughs>